Hello, welcome to Candy Jail. Last week, we introduced how plastic, and by extension, the oil and gas industry, is inextricably linked to the food industry. We broke down how plastic has been sold to us as a way to increase profits, as food continues to be presented to us in smaller and smaller packages with higher and higher profit margins. So the food and fossil fuel industries both stand to benefit when more individual units of food are sold using more plastic. Today, we'll be investigating the legislative dark arts and PR campaigns that make the ubiquity of plastic possible. To illustrate how far gone we already are, try to imagine a world without plastic. Virtually every consumer good we purchase is wrapped in it. Our food is surrounded by it. We pass it everywhere we go as litter. So for something to be that ubiquitous, that totally central to our lives, a lot had to take place for us to kind of passively accept this as the status quo. For one, we had to buy into the idea that plastic could be recycled. But that's a big step. Over the last 40 years, entire municipal, state, and international infrastructures have been set up to make this myth possible. That means a ton of public investment and private funds to help go along the legislation to create that infrastructure. People had to come to believe that discarding a piece of plastic meant that it could reemerge in the future as another piece of plastic. But only 5% of plastic is being recycled. That figure comes from the Department of Energy. Jan Dell, our guest from last week, and her organization, The Last Beach Cleanup, came to the same conclusion in a study that she conducted along with Beyond Plastics in 2022. The report also cites a 263% rise in per capita generation of plastic waste since 1980. So each time you enter a supermarket and see thousands of items wrapped in plastic, only about 5% of that plastic will be recycled. I have a hard time believing that if people knew that from the start, that they would have signed on to allow plastic to become such an integral part of their lives. So how did that happen? To help explain how this unfolded, we'll be hearing from investigative journalist Sharon Lerner. Sharon covers health and the environment for ProPublica. Prior to that, she spent seven years at The Intercept, which is where I first came across her work on the trickery that the plastics industry uses to continue to pump out product. We'll also hear from Jan Dell, our guest from last week. Sharon's work has stuck with me for several years now. The first story of hers I read starts out by covering a recycling bin decorating competition at an elementary school around Nashville. The event was put on by something called a bag's life. Here's a quote from Sharon's story explaining what that is. Quote, the contest was sponsored by a bag's life, a recycling promotion and education effort of the American Progressive Bag Alliance, a lobbying group that fights restrictions on plastic. That organization is part of the Plastics Industry Association, a trade group that includes Shell Polymers, Lionel Bazell, ExxonMobil, Chevron Phillips, Dow DuPont, and Novalex, all of which profit hugely from the continued production of plastics. And even as A Bag's Life was encouraging kids to spread the uplifting message of cleaning up plastic waste, its parent organization, the American Progressive Bag Alliance, was backing a state bill that would strip Tennesseans of their ability to address the plastics crisis. The legislation would make it illegal for local governments to ban or restrict bags and other single-use plastics products, one of the few things shown to actually reduce plastic waste. End quote. So the kids who designed their recycling bin to look like a dragon surely were subtly beginning to learn how to recycle directly from the industry, as we all did in one way or another. But maybe they weren't the target audience. 
because this seemingly innocuous activity for kids was somehow turned into a local news story, a feel-good story about kids protecting the environment. I wonder how the local news heard about it. Here's Sharon explaining how industry coalesces around their shared goals. Big oil companies often have a chemicals division, and that's because they have the same source, um, which is petroleum or fossil fuels. So 99% of plastic comes from fossil fuels, coal and, and gas and oil. And so some of the big companies that make, uh, you think of as, as fuel companies or as oil companies are also chemical companies that are very much involved in the production of plastics. And these are companies like Shell, ExxonMobil, Chevron Phillips, Dow, Novalex, and a bunch of these groups have come together. So there's an organization that represents a bunch of these companies called the Plastics Industry Association. And it's a trade group that that works to protect their interests. And part of what they're interested in is staving off legislation that would require responsibility from these companies to that would require these companies to take some responsibility for their waste. So they have fought bag bans and bottle bills and things that we know are really effective in in getting people to limit the the plastic waste. We've all kind of taken in this idea that that the litter and the plastic waste that's all around us is our fault. And of course we play a part if we, you know, have a have a drink in a cup and and put it in the trash or for that matter, put it in the recycling. But bigger picture, the companies that make them uh, get to uh, produce them for almost nothing and don't have any risk, don't end up taking responsibility for the waste that's caused by them. And so there's this kind of many campaigns, some of them focused on litter bugs, right? That, that it's, we people who who aren't careful enough with you know where we put our waste well it turns out that where we put our waste doesn't really matter so much when it comes to single use plastics cuz they're basically going to end up in a landfill or the ocean or being burned anyway but there's a really effective lobby happening that is backed by big plastics right and and big companies that that make plastic because they do not want to be stuck with the cost of cleaning up what they create because that cost is immense. The best way to not have to worry about those costs is to just blame people. That's that's how it had gotten to, literally. Happy people, hey kids, let's pick up waste. But that goes back to all the brainwashing and greenwashing from the crying Indian. Remember when it's people's fault and, oh, well, let's have a, and it's literally Keep America Beautiful that promoted these things. Some people have a deep abiding respect for the natural beauty that was once this country. And some people don't. People start pollution. People can stop it. Let's 
have a cleanup day, everybody. Let's clean up after those litter bugs, you know? So let's have beach cleanups. Oh, hey, let's celebrate this. Isn't this great? You can see how much it annoys me. And I bought into it to a certain extent because, yeah, there's there's some plastic and we should go pick it up. And I love going to the beach, but not that we should be making this an annual celebration of any sort. So the ad Jan just referenced that we heard a clip from was the famous crying Indian ad by Keep America Beautiful. That was the beginning of how industry began to shift the blame for their pollution onto people. It was started by industry in 1953. And today, Keep America Beautiful's partners include Coca-Cola, Anweiser-Busch, Deer Park, Poland Spring, Arrowhead, Nestle, Dow, McDonald's, Dart, PepsiCo, and the Plastics Industry Association, along with many more. It's all the usual suspects, and I gotta say, the hubris is impressive. I wonder where all that waste that needs to be cleaned up comes from. Who could have possibly done this? Right, it's just this amorphous plastic, which is why it's really great to if you see the coastal cleanups that happen, right? And then they they tag the biggest polluters and it's often Coca-Cola. And they actually go and pick up the trash on the beaches and see the brand names, right? And you can see them, Coca-Cola, often number one. And I haven't seen the latest, let me see, what is it? Audit, brand audits. Just curious what it is, let's see. Yes. Pepsi, Coke, Nestle, Reynolds, Hershey's. Yep. And, you know, I I did some reporting on this in Africa and Coke was huge there as well, too. And some of the same greenwashing techniques are happening there where there there is one sort of heartbreaking example I saw there where there were uh, kids who were essentially living near a, a humongous dump in Nairobi and uh, Coca-Cola offered to help with the cleanup and their the help that they offered was to supply Coke in plastic bottles, <laughs> which was kind of baffling. And and to see, you know, to see really what was so heartbreaking about doing that reporting was seeing people live on a mountain of plastic and near mountains of plastic and see their waterways clogged up with plastic everywhere you turn. And and of course, it's not that we have a really well-functioning recycling system. We know that we don't, but we don't have it piled up around us in the same way. And you know, there's no mystery how they're ingesting microplastics because it's so Obviously, the the big plastics and all <laughs> all sides of plastics are in their waterways, visibly. However awful it is for plastic to end up piled all over the places where massive multinationals have expanded their markets, it's even more jarring to consider the plastic that ends up in these places that it wasn't even purchased in. You may recall being surprised to hear that China stopped accepting our so-called plastic recycling. If you're like me... This was the first time you even heard that our plastic waste was being sent abroad. Now that China refuses it, it ends up in poorer countries that, according to investigations by The Guardian in 2019, don't manage their own plastic waste well. Our waste now gets sent to the Philippines, Ecuador, Cambodia, Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam, Thailand, Ghana, Turkey, Senegal, Bangladesh, and Hong Kong. We send 1 million tons of plastic waste abroad every year. 
I just saw our exports going there and they don't even have waste management, but all these products getting sold there. So it's so messed up. It's so waste imperialism. But a friend of mine is writing a book about the history of, of civil, you know, of, of the last hundred years where we used to ship hazardous waste to jungles and dump it. You know, I mean, this we've done this waste imperialism for years and then we banned that. And now we need to ban this. You know, it's just so messed up. And the waste industry was doing it. And the product industry was like, yeah, do it. Because we can say it's getting recycled. Just ship it offshore. Don't tell anybody. Oh, it was only because China finally said, no, we don't want it anymore that we all found out about this. Consider how much more accepting we've become of plastic just by virtue of the fact that so much of it physically leaves our environment, at least what's visible to us. I'm sure that people whose communities are polluted by our waste have no problem believing that plastic isn't recyclable. The reporting by The Guardian describes a seaside town in Cambodia where, quote, almost every inch of the ocean is covered with floating plastic and the beach is nothing but a glinting carpet of polymers, end quote. In order to minimize the volume of the plastic that gets sent there, much of it gets burned, polluting the air and water of the communities that somehow end up receiving that waste, with potentially very severe impacts on their health. The people in those communities are the direct victims of the efforts by the plastic industry half the world away to keep the illusion that plastic production can be sustainable. So each one of those industries has lobbyists that go in that try to weak, if, you know, good laws are going to get passed, they try to weaken or kill them. In some cases, they actually go in and pro proactively do things called preemption laws, where they come in and say, for example, this happened around plastic bags and styrofoam cups and things like that, where um, the plastics industry, it was really the packaging industry. Um, and plastics and petrochem came in their lobbyists to state legislators and they passed got state legislators to pass laws that say little cities couldn't put five cent fees on bags and so they preempted cities from doing local laws and that's so anti-democratic i've i've fought against helped fight against those ones but it's it's rough because they're typically in red states in fact colorado used to have one of those preemption laws but it's been overturned and so now you have some bag laws i don't know if you have a statewide one yet i can't remember but you can definitely have local ones there now oh there's lobbyists at each level really around plastic packaging it's really going to be who's going to be in there trying to weaken laws. Um, they're going to be the actual brand companies, going to be plastic packaging companies, um, and their industry associations. Just this morning, and in fact, there's a there's a session I want to. I'll it's recorded. There's something called the Flexible Packaging Association (FPA), and they're having a meeting today, and they're the ones who make all this plastic film for things like this and they are under the gun because their stuff is not recyclable and they know that they're in trouble. And so they keep coming up with hoaxes to say, oh yeah, we're gonna make it recyclable. And they have a they have a, a meeting going on today, a conference, which actually I can just listen to for free. And I listened to them last year, which is fascinating. And they're just coming up with schemes to try to figure out a way to say that this stuff's recyclable because that's like the key word that consumers 
and legislators, politicians care about. If you can say something's recyclable, it's okay. There, there's still issues with it, if it's even if it's labeled, if it's legitimately recyclable. There's a lot of waste in recycling plastic, but nevertheless, if that that is what they want to be able to call it. But people like me are suing on false labeling. There's stronger laws coming into effect to stop them to do it. But the so the product industry, the packaging industry, and then the petrochem industry would be involved to try to fight against bans against things like this or taxes um, or, you know, the, there's a in the in the United Kingdom, they have a tax on new plastic. And so they, those three levels would be going into lobby and, and try to say, oh, no, that'll just drive up costs for consumers and, and what have you. What the anti-democratic efforts like this reveal is the tendency of these companies to rely on the entire planet to shoulder their costs. The reason that they put so much deliberate effort into this is so that they can prevent people from coming to their own conclusions about what to do with plastic, just so that they can protect their profit margins. As we discussed in the second episode, this embodies the pursuit of efficiency. Of course, it's more efficient for Coca-Cola to package all their bottles individually and to use plastic instead of glass. It removes the work on the back end that they once had to do. Bottles would get cleaned and reused. What a concept. That costs time and money that they and every other for-profit producer doesn't want to pay. We can see this sort of PR maneuvering happening all across the world of plastic. Greenwashing happens on so many different levels that even the names of products evoke renewability. For example, here's Jan explaining how it takes place with Nature Valley. But I, I just got to show you this one thing that, that I'm obsessed with, which is the reason I'm showing this. Nature Valley granola, like here's the one. They're, they're, oh, they're so healthy. They're so green. They are leaving the biggest hooks on plastic packaging um, to pretend they're green. They they label all of their products that you can drop these things off at stores in take back bins and they'll get recycled with plastic bags. It is a hundred percent hoax. Um, I, they hired Zac Efron to promote it. There's very few store take back bins and then what gets put in there gets trashed because it's just a mess. No, but it's, it's worthless plastic waste. And they have put millions of dollars into promoting this. Their whole labeling is about promoting this. I've put trackers in the store take back bins. They go to landfill incineration. ABC just did a big expose and showed that that was happening at Target and Walmart. Um, and another big expose is going to be coming out soon. They are literally just just lying about this and trying to wrap themselves around being this green thing. Yeah, and then it's a green label. It's terrible. Now, optimistically, there there is some better packaging though. There there is. Um, I have examples, but there, I'm a fan of paper packaging because I do think people are going to want to have things, right? Hey, I'm Zach Efron. I'm psyched to be teaming up with Nature Valley over the next year to tell you guys what I'm learning about reducing plastic waste. Through my work on Down to Earth, I've learned about the steps that we can take to live more sustainable lives. Nature Valley's Crunchy Bar Wrapper is the first snack bar wrapper you can recycle in store. And that's a pretty huge deal. If more snack brands follow suit with in-store recycling, it could have a major impact on our planet. Over the next year, I will be working with Nature Valley to bring awareness to the importance of recycling and to help give a second life to recycled plastics, creating things like park benches or picnic tables. 
which is pretty freaking cool. Because the truth is, the planet deserves better, and in-store recycling is an easy first step. Get started at nvrecycles.com. What I love most about a campaign like this is that the subtext reveals how much decision makers at Nature Valley know that they are damaging the planet. I'll let you decide if you think that someone lied to those decision makers in order for them to approve this campaign, or if they willfully launched it in bad faith. However it went down, they spent a lot of money to get this campaign going. Somehow, it's worth more to them to do that than it is to try to use something like paper packaging, as Jan suggested. This is just another way that we're asked to shoulder the costs of these businesses. It's like companies dumping chemicals into rivers. If they're profit-seeking, and they don't have anyone to tell them otherwise, they're going to do it. The way that they prevent that regulation is by continually reinforcing the idea that it's unnecessary to the public. We can just do more as individuals. Yes, on a governmental level. I mean, I think the real change has to happen with making, bringing the financial responsibility to the waste to the companies that create it. That's the fundamental change that has to happen. Right now, we're all subsidizing them. And, and you know, through governments that have to deal with cleaning it up and and individuals and and in the like illnesses it causes, right? That we're all dealing with individually, those of us who have them. So I I guess we just need to open our eyes to to that and and deal with it head on. Like and which require as if that's a simple thing, but it requires shifting an understanding to the fact that we are all subsidizing them and that they do not pay the costs of the problem for the cost of the problem they created. And they and not only that, they've been they've been profiting wildly from it for decades. And there has been no attempt to take carve out even a portion of those profits for dealing with the consequences, the environmental consequences and the health consequences. Although firms like Nature Valley, which is owned by General Mills, may act independently with some of their PR lying campaigns, they remain a part of a larger network of profit-seeking firms with overlapping interests. These manifest in massive lobbies like the Plastics Industry Association, which is currently led by someone that has ties to the Koch brothers-founded Americans for Prosperity. What the Koch brothers have consistently demonstrated with their influence over government is a commitment to deregulation. These industries work tirelessly to ensure that there are as few barriers to profitability as possible, whatever the cost may be for everyone else. Matt Seaholm, who's the executive director of the American Progressive Bag Alliance, used to be the national director for Americans for Prosperity, which is uh, a Koch brothers-led group. And his, uh, Seaholm's position was very much you know, if uh, if environmentalists hate us, we're doing something right. He was very aggressive and kind of mocking of people who are concerned about plastic waste. And um, he was sort of the spear, the tip of the spear that was fighting, going around the country, sort of taking down efforts to pass bag uh, plastic bag bans. So 
And that was uh, done with ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is another Koch brothers affiliated group. So there is that there's that kind of nexus there. This commitment to deregulation and profits prevents us from seeing the simple fixes that exist right before us. It's not like this technology doesn't exist. People are going to want to buy chocolate. Okay, so this is not single-serve chocolate. There are quite a few of them in here um, to start with. And I bought this in the UK. It's Nestle product. It's paper. It's 100% recyclable and compostable. There are innovations that are coming out. I think this is a great solution. Again, it's not just one piece of candy, but even a, a candy bar. Candy bars will exist, right? You can't, it's impossible to be anti-candy bar. I try not to eat them, but it's impossible. People are going to want candy bars, but we can use paper packaging instead. There are in a safe, no PFAS paper packaging. And um, there are innovations to better materials that can be done on unavoidables. But of course, so much can be avoided with, with reusable cups, drink refill stations, stuff like that to get rid of like a huge amount of plastic. With the paper candy wrapper that Jan was describing in mind, recall how she also mentioned that the UK has a tax on new plastic. Is it any wonder then that this is a place where paper packaging is found for items like snacks? These things require intervention. And if we can't create those interventions, the plastic will continue to pile up. Well, you nailed it. You talked about the externalities. The external, it's the external costs that aren't included in their business models, which is why we see some laws that are trying to promote extended producer responsibility to try to price in packaging. I, I'm not a fan of them for plastic because I just think so many plastics should be banned. That you know, trying to like manage it through an economic, oh, let's put a tax on it to get rid of it or dissuade people. No, if it's bad, just ban it, right? The really bad stuff. Um, but yes, it's the externalities. It's it's all these external costs that they're dissociated from the company because like landfills in America, people who live next to the landfill, this is a huge cost to them. They hate it, right? Um especially if the landfill came in after, I'm sorry, but if you went and moved next to a landfill, that's different, but you know, things that come in after, but the, the, all, everyone else who doesn't live next to the landfill, oh, well, there's no cost to them. Right. So it's so hard. Any of those sort of environmental or social externalities to cost in, there's just so many, there's such a long list of egregious things that we don't need to have anymore that were, should be uninvented. They don't exist. Our quality of life will be fine without, right? Or switching if it's from plastic to paper, which, you know, if it's unavoidable and you've got to have it, I think that's way better as well. And, th and those are the things that, that we need. We just ultimately need to, to have happen. There's some progress being made. There's some progress being made, but um, boy, there's a long way to go because as you've pointed out, just the financial drive of selling more of this, getting people to consume more, going upsizing at the fast food, you know, having a snack, having a muffin at the middle of the day or what have you, they're relentless in that marketing. We have to stop. We have to stop 
making most of it. I, I think that's true. All the things and people say, but how can you do that? And then you have to remember, well, we actually were able to get by without it before it existed, right? So things like instead of takeout containers for your, you know, dinner, bring a bucket and, you know, a metal container and bring it home with you and wash it. And it's like, you know, and you can't do that for everything, but you can do it for a lot of things, right? Just stop using it. Stop, (laughs) you know, use glass, use metal. Try to imagine if landfills were in the middle of cities. If we could see the scale of waste, you know, aside from how it piles up around us as litter, if we could see that waste, I think that would get us the collective action we need to end the reign of plastic. I would hope that that would be associated with the companies that that produce the products inside the plastic as well. The General Mills, Unilever, Coca-Cola, and all the others that rely on fossil fuels to distribute their products in the cheapest way possible. So remember, pollution starts with people, and it can end with people too. Well, it starts with the people that lobby on behalf of the plastics industry, and it can stop by working to prevent them from having any influence over the way that we live our lives. Thank you so much for listening, and thanks to Sharon Lerner and Jandell for joining me. Check out some of Sharon's work at ProPublica, and you can find Jan's work at lastbeachcleanup.org. This has been Candy Jail. I'm Marcus Puskar. Thanks for listening. Life in a candy jail with peppermint bars, peanut brittle bunk beds and marshmallow walls. Where the guards are gracious and the grounds are grand, the warden keeps the data on your favorite brand.